0: Hello, and welcome to So Curious, presented by the Franklin Institute.
1: In this season, Human 2.0, we'll be talking to scientists and non-scientists alike about technology and innovation surrounding the human experience.
0: We're your hosts. I'm Angelica Pasquini.
1: And I'm the Boy Bay, but of course, you just called me Bay.
0: On today's episode, we're going to be talking about inclusion and advancing technology with grad student Kendall Nichols and neurobiologist Anya Schultz. Inclusion and advancing technology, Bay.
1: Science has gotten to where it is because of the people who have asked the questions. But it begs the question, who's asking the questions about the (laughs) questions? Okay, that's
0: a (laughs) wrapper, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah,
1: yeah.
2: (laughs) I love that. Yeah. So
1: I'm really excited to have these questions answered and also to have this conversation to just gain a better understanding about the landscape, where it was, where it is. Where's it going?
0: Yeah, it's so true.
1: There's been so many gatekeepers in our world. One interesting
0: thing about COVID in my world of comedy, as you could see, how many people were actually funny all along and like how many people are brilliant writers and have incredible premises for characters and now all the doors have been open but there's been so much gatekeeping around writing for TV for so many years and now these people are getting writer's room jobs or making their own shows.
1: Yeah, it's something that I've been picking up on some of these discussions that we've been having is science is essentially based off of curiosity Mm and the podcast that we're on (laughs) but what question is being asked. The access point just comes from asking the question, number one, and then following that question all the way through because you could be anywhere and deal with anything and there's science right in front of you. You just have to ask the question. A really big thing is like, well, who's helping you answer that question? What tools do you have to try to explore those curiosities? Yeah. And we're going to be having some really good, cool conversations. Totally.
0: I also think when someone asks a question, it's so important to consider who that person is because when they are asking it, they're coming from their own point of view, Right. right? And they're coming with their own understanding. What's really cool about and I'm so excited about talking to both these people is that they're in the science world and they're innovating and they're also saying, hey, hold on. We need to include everyone. And I know that both of us have recently learned that the more diversity that's included in writing studies and doing research and publishing work, the more diversity, the stronger the work and the better the findings.
1: Yeah. Planet Earth, this little blue dot that we're on, is really bound by science. It's held together by science. And so when you think about the world of science, it can't be rigid. It shouldn't be rigid. Right. Every Corner of the globe should be contributing to it because essentially every corner of the globe is affected by it. Right. So these questions, these inquiries, are are really super important. And I'm always curious about connection that we have to our surroundings, how it affects us, how we can affect it. Right. And and start crafting the world. The fact that you can create a world around you is like really astonishing to me. It
0: is, and the fact that now the power is so much more in the people's hands than ever, with things like DIY science, even like using three D. to
1: democratizing science. Exactly.
0: And then there's going to be all kinds of questions around that. As we open the doors and more people are allowed in, I think it's fabulous. And we need to make sure that ethically we are regulating certain things as we have new findings. But ironically, it was such a small pool of people who have created a lot of the standards and metrics that we base reality yeah. on that all of this is expanding now.
1: Absolutely. There's no boundaries anymore. Which is fun, but also a little weird. Right, so we're
0: gonna ask these people <laughs> about the work that they're doing around this, so yeah. I'm excited.
1: Our first guest is Anya Scholz. Anya Scholz is the program director of arts and design at the Tech Interactive. She leads the design and development of interactive experiences that inspire visitors to engage in biotechnology and the life sciences. Scholz is a champion accessibility and science, and is currently working on creating a new kind of exhibit and will serve as a community bio maker space where a hands-on experience will exist at the intersection of biology, design, and technology. In her bio design studio, visitors will get to be scientists.
0: Can you tell us a bit about what you do, what you create and your intention behind what you make?
3: Uh, my work mostly centers around trying to think about creating experiences for the everyday person that intersect biology with technology and design and making. So we really want to engage in particular young people with these sort of fields of biology and all of the new fields of bioengineering and synthetic biology in a more fun and engaging way. And we do that by sort of creating these experiences that blend a lot of things and allow everybody who comes in to play with things to create something for themselves, right? So we don't want to explain to people what biology is and give them all of the detailed facts. We want them to come in and engage in an experience for themselves that lets them feel empowered to think about biology as like a creative medium or problem-solving space that they can do something with. We do that by creating a variety of experiences. Some of them have been digital in the past, and then right now my work focuses on trying to do that by leveraging the sort of maker movement and maker spaces, which people have probably heard of, um, but traditionally maker spaces have been related to engineering. And so we sort of said, hmm, can we take some of the learnings from what people do in maker spaces and creating things. And can we find a way to intersect that with biology and design and get kids really excited about what is oftentimes a boring subject in school?
0: So when we talk about creating access to science, a lot of people will immediately want to have a conversation about schools. What does a school system that really champions science accessibility look like? I think the most sort of obvious challenge is that
3: science is one of the subjects that requires stuff to do it. Oftentimes you need like expensive lab equipment, you need tools, you need spaces, you need special knowledge. Um, and those things are not distributed equally. And then on top of that, my personal sort of thinking about one of the things that really needs to change in how we think about teaching young people science, which is, um, rethink how we frame science for young people so that their first exposure to science sets them up for success with the science that they're going to see for the rest of their lives. And for me, that sort of means shifting the framing from, science as sort of a static body of fact. This is body of knowledge that you do science by learning about it, as opposed to science as a process and sort of an active discovery and having kids participate in that part of it as like step one. So I think shifting that framing, providing a way to find access to the tools that are necessary to do some of the more complex stuff. And then also us as educators, shifting our own thinking about what is science so that it doesn't always need to have those sort of Uh, Resources. It doesn't need to be, you know, a micropipetter. You can sort of, if you're thinking about science as a process and engaging kids in that inquiry and empowering them to do the science for themselves instead of replicating an experiment that somebody did 100 years ago, you can use different tools. You can use accessible things, things that they find in their community, problems that they care about, things they find around their home. And if we can shift our thinking about what is teaching science to include that, I think it's accessible to more people and also is more welcoming to a broader range of people um, and a broader set of kids because it's more relevant to their lives and their communities.
1: That's really important. And building on that, how do you ensure that when new science is discovered that it gets passed on? Is is this, I guess, an antidote for misinformation, you know, ensuring that that information is passed on and that it's accurate as well?
3: That's an interesting one. I think that if we had a more sort of science literate general public, it would be easier to imagine that the burden of passing that information on, as you said, correctly, is more equally shared. I've seen research, you know, saying that people are most convinced by hearing what they hear from people that they trust and care about, right? The most impact can be had by communicating correct scientific knowledge by it coming from people in our lives already.
1: Yeah. And that speaks to including all these different voices. So that function can happen, that trust. Can be built. And in order for that trust to be built, I'd imagine you need to include diverse groups of voices and diverse groups of people so everyone can have that access point.
0: I want to talk about your specific connection to science growing up, how you sort of became connected to science, and then also why it's important to you to create this accessibility, especially in such a creative. Way and that's so uniquely you.
3: I grew up on a, on a island in Alaska, actually, so it was a pretty remote. I went to sort of public schools that didn't have any sort of advanced schooling, I guess. But I always loved sciences. I loved outdoors. I loved nature. I think that's where my love of science came from. Like, I love asking questions. And, and that is like a core part of science, is just being curious and asking questions. And I think when I realized that those two intersected, I was really excited by that. That was like where my intellectual interest lay. I just really wanted to get to ask questions about biology. You know, the option sort of I was looking at was going on to do a postdoc and stay in academia. And I, I just realized that that wasn't actually quite where my passion was. I really, really loved helping other people experience like that joy that I got to experience at the graduate level of science, which is sort of relates back to what I was talking about um, with how we frame science for young people. Science at the graduate school level is the joy of discovery and nobody tells you what to do and you decide what questions you want to ask and how to get the information and what matters. That's what science is. But most people never experience that because you have to end up like in a graduate program.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think what we are gathering from this information is you're sort of trying to help take away out some of the gatekeeping around science. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's a great
1: way of putting it. Can you open up that discussion a little bit more and tell us how Makerspace democratizes science and, and how it does outreach to get people involved? The
3: power that maker approaches bring is that they are very intentionally like learner-centered and framed around this idea that like the learner constructs their knowledge. A third party doesn't just come up to you and say, here are the things you learn, and then you learn them. The idea is that Through building something yourself, you construct your own knowledge, and that process, that iterative process, is how somebody actually learns something.
0: For someone who might not be familiar with the term, just let us know what a makerspace is.
3: Yeah, Makerspace is usually just sort of like a a flexible workshop space that provides tools and resources for people to come in and create things.
1: I think that's really cool because, you know, I spoke about earlier shaking up the structures of, of education and how we interact with science. When I think of a science lab, you know, coats, beakers, glassware, and all the sorts. But you're saying that if, you know, Angelica and I were to step into this space, this is a workshop? What's around us in this space?
3: That's a really interesting question and something we actually thought pretty intentionally about in the design of the space that I run, the, the biotinkering lab, we call it, um, which is this intersection of like making and biology. We drew inspiration for this space from like kids' bedrooms and labs. So it's actually like sort of a weirdly shaped space. It's not square. And then on top of that, we layer like the science equipment. People walk into a space and like, this doesn't feel like a lab. When you walk into a sterile lab space, people sort of like don't want to touch anything. We wanted to sort of remove that association with biology. Like this is like, there's like books in here. There's like, there's, there's soft cushions by the window. It's a welcoming space. There's things that look like your kitchen, look like your library. Whatever you bring is part of what's valuable to like contribute to science. Science lives with this. It isn't sort of separated.
0: I'm curious about adult or actually maybe any age makerspaces. I'm curious about the impact of biology makerspaces in the future of human health and medicine. Like what kind of findings, what's a cool example of a finding someone has um, found in a makerspace?
3: Um, There's been a lot of really interesting projects that have emerged from them that sort of highlight the value of adding in different voices to who does science and sort of coming back to like, I like to ask questions. Like who asks questions determines what questions are asked, which determines what science is done, right? And that's critical for like what we know about the world. Uh, It starts with like who asks the questions, right? And historically it has been a fairly narrow slice of the population that asks the questions that we answer with science. There's been some really interesting work in the people looking to, it's called the Open Insulin Project. And so, you know, insulin is really expensive. But it's like the technology to manufacture that using biological systems, like pretty old, but it's not accessible. It's really expensive. And so there's a project in one of these biohacker, biomaker spaces to basically hack that process and be able to produce insulin themselves. Wow. So people have done that? They're pretty far along in the process. I don't think they've actually successfully produced anything. And then there's the whole like probably a regulatory step after that. That's a whole... There, That's incredible. Other <laughs> part yeah. of the process.
0: Where are some of the maker spaces located?
3: The f- most well-known first one was in New York City called oh. Gen Space. There's uh, several in the Bay Area. There's this ones in Seattle, Chicago. At this point, there's ones all over the U.S. as well
0: as all over the globe.
3: And maybe not surprisingly, a lot of them sprung up initially in urban centers.
0: What do you see? Like pie in the sky? Just what would be your greatest dream for these spaces?
3: I would love to see the spaces that are distributed through all these different regions around the world. We have these these maker spaces in different locations. I'd love to see the democratization of the tools of biology. I was talking about, like, it's hard to know what are the systems and the tools are hard to use. I'd love for those to be democratized enough that, like, you could see each individual lab space using those tools to do something that was, like, super local, super relevant to whatever their community and culture was. We're not just all using the same activity or the same technologies, but everybody has used them for their own community.
0: We have one last question. We're curious, can people feel the effects of inventions from these spaces in everyday life?
3: Currently, we think of science from a very Western perspective, right? Like, what is science is a very relatively narrow subset of how you can explore the world, and that's a Western science perspective. Um, And so a lot of times when we think about the science coming out of these in our daily lives, I'd say that a lot of the science that's used in these community biomaker spaces is technology that can be used for really cool new modern innovations like synthetic biology inventions and like you know engineering bacteria to make diesel or whatever. But also like using bacteria to produce a product we want at its core is the same technology as fermentation, which is one like really easily accessible and used in these spaces a lot. And so people will have done some version of fermentation in a community bio lab that I would say is in everybody's everyday life. But at the same time, it isn't like a new invention of these spaces. Those are like technologies. Technologies and things that humans have used in a variety of like cultures across the world for thousands of years. I love that. I
1: love that answer. I think, you know, what I really like about that answer is it keeps me curious about some of the ripple effects that we might see from the work that you're doing. So, and that's the whole point of this podcast is just to remain curious and be curious. And so thank you for that. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you all for being curious. I love it. Thank you.
1: I gotta say, I'm always thrilled to hear accessibility, really in any industry, but especially science. When she talked about the workshop, yeah, it not looking like you know uh, glassware all over the place and the white lab coat. Like people are getting their hands dirty.
0: Yeah, that (sighs) that was really cool. It's cool to see. You know, everyone is a scientist all day, every day, and everything that we do. Right. But what she was saying is like we are giving people even more materials than they thought that they could be around. Yeah, um, yeah. Typically, there's so much gatekeeping around science. Yeah, and, and to she, your point,
1: I like that if you ask a question, guess what? You're a scientist. Yeah. Ask some more questions. <laughs> See where it goes.
0: And I think you and I are scientists at this point. I'm absolutely a scientist. Okay,
1: so. me too. For <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, Yeah. Kendall Nichols is a PhD graduate student at Penn studying neuroscience, particularly concussions and traumatic brain injury. She is the Outreach Chair at the Ernest E. Just Biomedical Society at the University of Pennsylvania. The society aims to serve the professional development of Black and underrepresented minorities. As Outreach Chair, Hannah Nichols develops relationships with established organizations like the Franklin Institute to further the mission outside of the university and into the Philadelphia community.
2: I'm Kendall and I am from Maryland. I was always an athlete. I love music. I play the saxophone. I love people.
1: So Kendall Nichols, you are a PhD graduate student at Penn Medicine and are currently working on a research project about preconditioning. Yes. The brain for a faster recovery after a concussion. Could you talk a little bit about your, your academic journey? What drew you to this?
2: As I said, I played sports. So I was a D1 volleyball player. Let's go. And we always <laughs> did all these things that like stretching and these little small workouts to precondition our muscles so that if we get injured, the recovery is faster. But people would get like concussions and you would be out for a long time. There was no way to like really determine how long you'd be out. And
1: what's the definition of a concussion? We hear it a lot, right? It's
2: actually not a term for a diagnosis. It's more of a symptom. So a concussion is actually when your head is hurting after a force has been applied to your head. I was like, hmm, We do this with every muscle but the brain. Is there a way that we can actually change our lifestyles to make sure that we can recover faster? And concussions affect everyone. Like they're not just an athlete thing. They're not just like a military thing. Like you can get a concussion being in a car accident. You can get a concussion falling down. So I was like, This would help literally everyone. What have you
1: found so far in terms of things that you can do to precondition yourself?
2: There's more work after to make the recovery faster. So, for example, don't eat fried food. Don't eat a lot of dairy. Don't eat a lot of sugar because those things actually make the recovery longer. So they have like an idea of what to do after in terms of like diet or like don't work out too hard because that still takes brain power. Don't look at TV, but nothing before.
1: And Kendall, you're really, really accomplished, even in like you know the young stages of your, your career and your research. You are the outreach chair at the Biomedical Society at University of Pennsylvania, where you work to serve professional development of black and underrepresented minorities. Can you talk about that? Why is that important to you? Why were you drawn to that?
2: I love giving back, but I also, in general, there's not a lot of Black people at University of Pennsylvania. So it's very important to me being in Philadelphia, where there are a lot of Black people, that there's like not that disconnect. And to make sure that I'm actually connecting with the community, that my research will impact one day. It's not so much me trying to create things to do, but it's like, oh, I know that, you know, the Franklin Institute has this workshop they're trying to do, but they need some people behind it. So let me help provide that and really get that off the ground instead.
0: As outreach chair, you develop relationships with organizations specifically like the Franklin Institute. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
2: Yes. So there's like science education as a whole is not at the top. (laughs) And then then, like public school education is a whole different thing to hop into. Right. So I reached out to the Franklin Institute because of the fact that they know about the education system. They have these connections. They're a part of like trying to really build on this education that needs help in terms of being enriched. And so we have a lot of black students who don't really know what to do, but want to do something. Right. So I am trying to bridge that gap and trying to help them because one of the Franklin Institute, one of the things they told me is like, we want people of color as well. We want Black people as well, so that the students that we're working with in the community see themselves.
0: I wanted to ask, as you think about the future of biology and in our world we live in now with so much innovation, why is it important specifically that diverse voices are represented, welcomed, and elevated in your field?
2: Yeah, so I think it's extremely important because there's perspective, right? Our cultures and our backgrounds just influence the way we think about these different questions, right? So that's why I'm like, this is really important because it really is an individual perspective that affects that science. And that's what I really want to see in biology. But that can't happen if you just have the same experiences in the room.
1: You are so accomplished in the work that you're doing early in your career. You also serve as the Black in Neuro chapters manager. Could you speak to your particular experience of being Black in Neuro?
2: So actually neuroscience is one of the newest disciplines of science. There hasn't been much foundation when it comes to building different communities. And so being one of the newest disciplines comes with like a lot of fluidity and people gatekeeping differently There's a lot of black people who were like oh I've never seen a black neuroscientist I had never seen a black neuroscientist until the founder her name's Angeline Dukes and she was like hey we should try to get all the black people together and see if there's a community and so she started that and it was like amazing because we're like where were you I've never seen you. like, you're at the institution right down the street yeah yeah so that's been wow. really amazing and it's an international thing and it's been an amazing amazing experience just to learn about these different people and like learn about neuroscience. And again, neuroscience is one of the newest disciplines. So really anything can be connected to neuroscience.
1: Yeah. And I'm sensing such an excitement from you around these topics. Where is that coming from as far as sports, neuroscience, concussions, all these different things? You are fired up. Where is that fire coming from?
2: Um, so I've always been curious as a kid and I was always encouraged by my parents to just like explore whatever I was curious about and whatever I wanted to try. And so... the brain is just confusing to me. I think it's crazy that we have to use our brains to study the brain. And I have a theory that the brain does not want us to know about the brain. Wait, That's go why on we about hear- that. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we want to hear. Yeah, go, go, so go I, I'm convinced about that, that it's like keeping it secret. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I love movement. I love sports. I love all of these things. And I just because I've been encouraged to just like keep going after what I love. That's really where that fire comes from, because I don't think I have to choose one. I don't think I have to choose sports over neuroscience, over music or any of those things. I think I can do them all. <laughs> and so, of course, like sometimes it's a little bit much, but it really just keeps me excited and keeps me on my toes. And I always want to keep getting better and keep knowing. So that's really where like I've just always been an excitable person when it comes to like pursuing something that's interesting to me. And I think again, my theory about the brain. I think it's interesting. We'll see if it unlocks its secrets, though. I mean, what, yeah. what, what, can you
1: talk more about that? Because that is really, really funny. Is there any, uh, I don't know, language that you've developed around the brain not wanting us to know about the brain?
2: Well, there's plasticity. And so plasticity is the concept that like your brain adapts and changes to different environmental reasons. So there's, there's been many theories, right, in neuroscience where, like, they've made this concrete. This is how the brain works. And then, like, 20 years later, they're like, actually...
1: That whole thing we did.
2: Yeah, that, that, <laughs> that's not true. And I'm like, yeah, that's because our brains actually know. And so they're doing plasticity and changing. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: and as the brain is learning about the brain, it might, like, sense, like, hmm, maybe we can uh, adapt and change. Yeah. You know what I mean? around the Around the new discoveries. Yeah. Since you have such a fresh. We've we've spoken to so many different kinds of people on this show. And it's really amazing to be sitting with like the future of it rather than like someone... We have so many experts that are on and people who have like published all of these studies. And the truth is when I, I... sometimes I pitch them a question that's like, so with neuroplasticity and meditation, can we change our brains? Can we change with food? Can we, you know, like a lot of young people, we're like trying to hack our brains with um, uh, sort of taking the power into our own hands. So I guess what I'm curious about is you as like a person who's beginning your career and who's so excited about it, what specifically lights you up about this work and where do you see your work going in the future?
2: So what excites me, honestly, is the accessibility of it. I like before, I feel like not a lot of people understand science for a reason. Like, a lot of people don't understand it because they use language. Like, the scientific community uses language that's confusing. Yeah. And so it's like, how are you really going to understand this science if they're using jargon? But I feel like there's more people like me now who want to like make this accessible to the community and so now like I'm excited about like maybe 10 years from now I can be in Trader Joe's having a conversation about (laughs) the brain and they're like yes yes I saw that and you're like yes and so we're all actually being able to understand what's going on and like that's really what makes me excited that's really why I do the outreach that's really because I just want us to all be able to have these conversations and not be confused or feel like it's so far out of our league or like we that's not for me
0: and including outreach, but like also aside from that, I'm like, what specifically in science are you interested in focusing on and like, where's the terrain on un- untapped?
2: Yeah. So I want to focus on make like these treatments. So I want to create a treatment possibly around the idea of preconditioning um, where like, say it's like something that we take, and everyone can take it, and it can help us precondition from traumatic brain injury. That's really what, like, I want to do with my research. And the reason being is, like, traumatic brain injury research uh, treatment actually is, like, extremely expensive. Oh, um, yeah. So it's, like— Normally, somebody has to be in the hospital for a long time. Like, that's a lot of money. So a lot of people actually don't report their TBIs, which is like the short term for traumatic brain injury. And so that causes more damage.
1: You're saying like you have to sit in the hospital for like seven days to even get to the point of possibly having that treatment. And seven days in a hospital could cost...
2: Exactly. Insurance is a lot. Like, So there's so many reasons why you wouldn't get treatment for your TBI. Right. So that's really what I want to do with my research is make it way more accessible so that you don't have to be rich in order to have access
1: to this. Why is it important for people to be on the same page and have that dialogue about science and for everybody to use that same language that's recognizable? Why is that important?
2: That is extremely important because that means that we're able to move forward as a society and we're able to like actually provide opportunities for people and provide thought processes and perspectives in a space that was never allowed before. Like academia and science was not created for me as a Black woman to like go and think and do this research. That was never their intention. However, I'm here and I want to continue to broaden that and open that up so that we can continue to have different voices.
1: So you talked about being a, an athlete you talk about being in a, a minority. How are your other lived experiences? How does that influence your research?
2: Yes. So I have, one, switched my different career paths that I wanted. (laughs) So at one point I wanted to be a doctor, I wanted to be a teacher, like I wanted to be a medical liaison, which is a person who talks to researchers and doctors and try to get them on the same page. I wanted to do a ton of things and I think that's what really influences my role in neuroscience is because I see that I can technically be involved in all of these different things without choosing one track. And so that influences like my neuroscience, in my research, but um, another thing is my dad is an immigrant, and so he has, like, a certain experience, and my mom grew up in Washington, D.C., and so she grew up in a metropolitan area, and so I grew up in suburban Maryland, and so having, like, an immigrant father and a metropolitan mother, like, seeing their different ways of thinking, the different ways of living, all of those different things, that's another reason why I talk about accessibility so much, because I see how just where they lived affected how they think. I see where they live just affected how they move throughout the day. So I just feel like having all of those around me makes me want to connect with people that much more. And if my work doesn't connect with people, I don't really feel like I'm doing my job.
0: Cool. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. This is great. Absolutely. Yes.
1: That was awesome. That was a lot of energy, a lot of fire, and yeah. uh, a lot of information too. It was amazing to see such a bright light in the right. science
0: community. Right. I mean, she's yeah. going to do amazing. She already is. She's already doing amazing things. and I can't wait to see what she does.
1: And I'm from Philadelphia, right here in the city, and she's doing so much work and running around in the space to connect dots, as they say, right? Like mm-hmm. she's a part of this uh, UPenn institution in West Philadelphia and interacting with the community in a really, really real, genuine way.
0: Yeah, there's nothing like seeing someone doing... What what they're really meant to do.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I I love how she, you know, wants to create that space where everyone's talking about science because they have a question, because they're interested, because they just have like a a better language to to enter the space with.
0: Yeah, totally. And also when she was talking about preventative care for traumatic head injuries, that being her passion, how specific, how helpful. I mean, it's incredible.
1: It's so interesting to me that the brain... Is, is well known. Mm. We we've been studying it, but it remains such a mystery. Yeah. And we have all these practices with the rest of our body in terms of preventative care. But our brain around, you know, concussions and, 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 and traumatic injuries, it's like we don't have much. And she seems fired up to figure it out.
0: Yeah, I feel like she is
1: going. She's probably to- gonna fi- she's probably figured it out now, I think.
0: Probably by right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, this is Angelica Pasquini from So Curious. You know what? We love making this show, okay? But sometimes there are great bits and we just can't fit them into the episode. So we put together a bunch of great bonus content and you can find that available at beyond.fi.edu. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of So Curious. This podcast is part of the Franklin Institute. The Franklin Institute is a science museum located in Philadelphia. The Franklin Institute's mission is to inspire a passion for learning about science and technology. For more information on everything about the Franklin Institute, visit fi.edu. This podcast is produced by Radio Kismet. Radio Kismet is Philadelphia's premier podcast network for businesses looking to develop their own branded podcast content. Check them out at radiokismet.com. There's a lot of people who make this podcast happen. Thanks to the producers, Joy Montefusco and Jayatri Das. Our managing producer, Emily Cherish. Our operations head, Christopher Plant. Our associate producer, Liliana Green. Our audio team, Christian Sederlund, Goldie Bangley, Lauren DeLuca, and Brad Florent. Our development producer, Opeola Bukola, our science writer Kira Veyet, and our graphic designer Emma Sager. See you next week.